to the podcast where together, every Monday, we explore hospitality in its very broader sense, from culture and cooking, cocktails and coffee, nutrition and farming, politics and animal welfare, organic and sustainability, family and business, entrepreneurship, and much, much more. Come and learn with me, Mark Cribb, about where our food and our drink comes from and the businesses and more importantly the human beings that thrive on where we decide to spend our time and our money. Sign up to our weekly newsletter at humansofhospitality.co.uk and hit subscribe on your podcast player of choice. Here we are, the last podcast of 2020. Not quite the year any of us had in mind, but I've still had some fantastic conversations with some of the wonderful humans who work in or work around the broad spectrum of hospitality businesses. A big thank you to all the guests who've taken part and all of you who have listened regularly, particularly those of you that have been in touch directly or left reviews online. It's really appreciated, and it's the reason that I continue to travel around the country having these interesting conversations. Now, one of the challenges this year has been the need to have these conversations in more of a real time and turn them around much faster, largely due to the incredibly fast pace that the sector has been moving, making certain parts of conversations obsolete within days. That means that I don't have a backlog of episodes to release over the festive period in the same way that I did last year. This episode, for example, was recorded on Thursday, edited Sunday and released Monday. And the reason I'm telling you this means that it is most likely that the next release will be on the 18th of January. It may be the week before, but let's go for an under-promise, over-deliver kind of scenario. And I'm sure you'll manage a few weeks without me, and of course, that'll give you the chance to catch up on a few episodes you may have missed during the year. Uh, Just in case you forget, why not sign up for the newsletter at humansofhospitality.co.uk so that I will crop up in your inbox again the very next time a show is released. This week, though, we are off to have a chat with Emma McClarkin, the Chief Executive of the British Beer and Pub Association. Now, we actually got to record this in a pub, which was very exciting to have an excuse to actually go and meet another human being face-to-face inside a real British pub. But what it does mean is there is a bit of background music and noise at times. Hopefully you'll love it since it'll help you remember what a pub sounds like and how nice it would be to actually be in one if you were allowed. But sorry if at times it is just a little bit off-putting. I was very excited to chat to Emma since she's had a fascinating career working in the heart of government in the EU, in part negotiating trade deals. Therefore, this chat broadens out to start with Emma's thoughts on the EU and our opportunities and risks as we hurtle towards departure. You'll be pleased to hear that Emma's pretty optimistic on post-EU trade, particularly where the export of exceptional British beer is concerned. We also chat about Emma's experience liaising directly with the government on the behalf of the BBPA's members, representing over half of the pubs in the UK, and that's over 20,000, and 90% of the brewing industry. They're a really important voice, and we discuss how it felt like that the relationship between government and the sector was very strong in spring, but really broke down over the summer recess period. 
We also touch on whether a minister for hospitality would make the ear of government better or worse, why on earth the government is being so slow in extending support into next year, as is happening in Europe, and some of the longer term issues, such as beer duty and business rates, that have been negatively skewing the sector long before Covid appeared on the scene. I really enjoyed chatting to Emma. Emma's well informed, has a wealth of experience and is well connected in central government. A clear asset for the BBPA and the wider hospitality world in general. I'm confident Emma and I will be chatting again in the future and I'm confident that you will enjoy this conversation. Over to Emma. Emma McClarkin, Chief Executive of the British Beer and Pub Association. Uh, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for joining me. And we're actually sat face to face in a pub, aren't we? Which is very exciting. For people listening, can you just explain where are we in the world? Uh, we're at the Bishop's Mill. It's a Green King pub uh, here in Salisbury. It's absolutely stunning place. And they've really done a, a good job with the Christmas deck. So um, it's great to be here in person. Oh, it's just nice to get out, despite the fact that we had to get through the, you know, the track and trace system to get into the building. Once you're in, it feels like I'm in a pub. I am unfortunately having a coffee, but than a beer but it's pretty exciting so um bit of research obviously booked you in a little while ago and, and just checked you out very quickly then to make sure we could have a chat but when I was researching yesterday I got really excited about you've done so many things in the last sort of 10 years or so uh, it was really difficult to know uh, where to start because because there's so many uh, amazing bits I'm, I'm going to ask you first of all so we're going we're to chat a little bit about all the random stuff you've done particularly in Europe we're going to chat about the association we're going to chat about the future of pubs and what's happening and that kind of stuff but we'll, we'll start with um, the association briefly and then move on but you accepted the role uh, chief executive September 2019 what made you take a job? I mean, it sounds a bit like a dream job probably to a lot of people, but what made you take uh, up that role? Um, what a challenge it has been for me since too, but um, I've been incredibly lucky over my career actually to work in things that I'm genuinely passionate about. And um, when the opportunity came up uh, to be uh, the chief exec for British Beer and Pubs, it was like perfect, match made in heaven. And all of my friends said, are you real? For real? Is, there, is that really a job? Yeah, is it executive? actually a job? Yeah. I was like, yes, it is. And is that a real email address, beerandpub.com? I was like, yep, that's mine. Um, so I actually started in November, though, um, and then had no clue that uh, three months later we'd be facing the biggest crisis that's ever hit the industry. So I really had to, to hit the ground running. And um, I've got a phenomenal team at the BBPA uh, that have uh, run alongside me on uh, what has been an extraordinary year. Yeah, it has, hasn't it? Yeah, would you have taken the job knowing what was going to happen in uh, COVID world, do you think? Or? I genuinely wanted a challenge um you know having, right. having so it's your fault yeah. having been you know a politician for 10 years I, I wanted to come out and challenge myself to see if I could use my my knowledge and experience in in a different arena perhaps I wouldn't have chosen the Everest that this battle seems to be but um but no definitely I'm up for that and that's why I chose to to come in and to the sector yeah like you say amazing time was the interview in a pub by any chance or one when of them you, was. Was it? Excellent. I can, see, I can see the appeal. It sounds like a great thing. Okay, so, but before this, you were a, a member of the European Parliament for 10 years. Uh, that sounds pretty cool, particularly with the sort of backdrop, I suppose, of what's going on at the moment with us coming out. So I just want to explore that a little bit before we come back to pubs. What was your role? Well, yeah, absolutely. You know, um, it was, you know, an honour and a privilege to serve um, and represent my country in the European Parliament for those 10 years where I represented the East Midlands and uh, I know that part of the country very well. But I also got to know the landscape over in uh, the European Parliament and the political scene over there. And uh, yeah, I think I chose an interesting 10 years to be there with the 
debate in and around whether the UK should stay or leave. Um, I do say uh, very much that, you know, it is something that has been quite divisive, but I do see more opportunities uh, that may come with Brexit um, once we finally sort it out on mm. which terms we are leaving. Um, but it, yeah, I made extraordinary contacts, extraordinary experiences over there. And I specialize in international trade and that is going to be a real focus for the United Kingdom, particularly with the vision of global Britain. And I really believe that our beer, particularly in our reputation globally for hospitality, has got a lot that we need to champion right now. And there is a lot of opportunity there. Mm, yeah. Okay. So one of the reasons why I was getting excited to chat to you because to chat to somebody who's sort of seen the inner workings particularly for a long time you know to 10 years is a good length of time isn't it did you go there with a particular sort of opinion I suppose as to whether you were pro-Europe or, or, or anti, not, not anti-Europe but you know sort of sceptical maybe of the administration or did you learn some stuff that you were there you know when you see it from the inside did you go my god this is amazing and absolutely you know we should, we should be in bed with this for the next 200 years or did you look at it and go there's probably some inefficiencies here maybe we can operate better out. I, I think the EU has always been viewed from a distance and as it has, you know, it's very far off and distant to a lot of people. And um, I'd been working inside um, the, the, the party for a long time with uh, European politicians and I got an, invited to be over there um, working as a political advisor. And it was when I moved to Brussels and I saw the machine at work and the pace at which it was growing that I really became quite anxious. So um, there were meetings that I could be privy to and then there were meetings that I was kicked out of and so the politicians stayed in and I was like, I want to know what the inner workings of this really are, what happens in those secret negotiations. So I put myself forward um, to sort of say, I'm going to stand up for my country, I want to be in that room, I want to be fighting for my country in these negotiations. And, th and then you kind of find out it's not as sophisticated um, as you had hoped it would be when you're inside the room. Um, I had some mind-blowing conversations about whether a Twix is one portion or two, whether chicken can be classified as a meat, um, and what the font size on a packet of chewing gum should be. And people go, that can't be real. And I'm like, it absolutely was. Um, and all to do with food labelling. So it, it is extraordinary, the, the sort of minutiae that they get down to. And you can see from that, and my experience has been, that they absolutely get bogged down. That's in interesting, that isn't it? Because that, that's kind of some of the uh, negative press headlines. And I guess, you, you know, in the, in the world of hospitality, generally most people you speak to seem to be terrified about, you know, the sort of future of employment and the ease of moving food and stuff like that. So I suppose certainly, and this is probably a little bit, you know, like, like the debate, and I don't want to, you know, get into it too much fundamentally. It's a divisive subject, isn't it? And half, pretty much half the people agree and half the people disagree. So it's a tricky one. But I just, you know, I, I love to speak to people who've actually experienced it, you know, who've actually been there in the thick of it. Why, you know, as an example, with that level of detail, why why do they get bogged down in that level of detail rather than because we we all get the big picture, free trade, uh, crime, you know, let's not have any more wars. That all seems like good stuff. How, how did we ruin it to the point where somebody's got to debate the size of a Twix? What, what, how does that occur? I mean, listen, on the broad brush of the original aims and objectives, I think most people would say, yeah, that sounds like a, a pretty good deal, pretty good club. I'm in. And then it grew arms, legs, feet, branches, roots, um, the actual physical buildings to house more and more civil servants just grew and expanded and they all need something to do. And I think that that level of minutiae came with sort of, um, you know, forgetting what the bigger picture was supposed to be, that we were supposed to be helping each other, building a strong economy, making business easier to do, increasing trade, increasing jobs. But they all needed something to do. So I, I, I am convinced that, you know, we they let the machine grow 
out out of control mm. and um, and they'll have to find ways to rein that back in because in crisis times of crisis you cannot be going down to the you know the 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 wing mirror on a tractor mm. <laughs> um, and uh, you know that kind of level of minutiae because people need jobs they need help and we need to go back to the broader broader principles and that's what we need to remember as when we, we come out of the European Union as well is that we have to remember that bigger picture and those aims and objectives you know we were terrible though in the UK for gold plating and I have to say that's something we're experiencing through this crisis as well so constantly challenging the need to go above and beyond all the time I've had a lot of experience of that so hopefully that's still being instead for the the own fights that we have at home with our own civil servants as well okay and and why do we do that why is that particularly a british oh we are so british about it because we follow everything to the letter Mm. of course in in europe i find that many of the other countries they vote for it absolutely everything yep 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 knowing full well there would be zero implementation of most of the rules and yet we are you know we like to pride ourselves on you know, sticking by them and getting everything absolutely right and, uh, you know, crossing the T's and dotting the I's. And and that's what we do. And unfortunately, um, that doesn't really fit in with a machine that then goes down to that level of detail. Mm, that's interesting because that's been my sort of, uh, yeah, I wondered if it was a, a misconception, but certainly perception has, has been that, yes, we, you know, I, and I can't remember the examples of a few years since I looked into it, but I remember something that had been agreed to and there were some examples given of the number of people in France that were there to enforce some of the regulations that had been done and the number of people in Britain that were there to enforce it and, and I really actually I you know I really respected the French because I was I love that idea you just keep saying yes yes you know let's get on with it let's let's just move on and get some stuff done yeah uh, it doesn't matter whether you agree or disagree because then if yeah if you don't pay anyone to, to basically go and enforce it job solved isn't it it's kind of like we got through all the shit we're done we can move on yeah. uh, no we didn't actually go back and check no obviously you know that would be a stupid idea and I kind of quite like that really it's a bit like a lot of the COVID rules and you and I were chatting before we started recording about the EHO and it's kind of like yes you can have broad brush rules that intelligent human beings should be able to interpret and, and use, but then you get a, a rule maker in your local EHO department who just says, you know, here are the facts, you know, A, B, C written down, and there's no interpretation. So yeah. but the thing is, it's supposed to be a level playing field. So mm, when you all vote be. for something and it's supposed to be, yep, yeah, that's level, but you know that it's not in reality, that's where there becomes that tension then. Yeah. You know, we're playing by the rules and you're not playing by the rules. Yeah. You know, no, you've I... just signed the paper, but you're not actually doing anything with yeah. it. And, and that leads to that tension. So, you know, and that's all we keep saying is that we need level playing field and yeah and, well that's that's the thing so the, with what's going on at the moment level playing fields constantly in the press every day and i'm sorry to take you back it's like a bit of history for you isn't it you'll be getting wound up going oh my god i got out of that life but um what's your take you you got involved with a lot of trade negotiations over the years you know sort of internationally what's your take on how negotiations are going at the moment is this a uh, are they fundamentally using the sort of the press i suppose to bash each other over the head with are there genuine problems what's your thoughts on, on how it's going yeah i mean when I was the international trade spokesman um, in, in Brussels, and that's where the power was to, to make all the trade deals. So we were the real scrutiny over what was happening, and we knew that we were going to have a tough job. You know, negotiating with the EU is not easy at all. They always want to stretch it out and make it go down to the wire. So I thoroughly anticipated with a very long timetable that we would end up 
going right down as we are yeah. to the wire on this and um but you know e even globally when we're negotiating you know, other people you know they've been negotiating trade deals for years so i knew that the uk had to really step up in terms of getting its team and experience together because you know people like the australians they're phenomenal negotiators they've had to do it but what i do know about negotiations is it doesn't matter how brilliant your negotiation teams are they have to have the political will to get a deal and we're seeing right now that the uk trade team actually is delivering lots of deals pre um, are, are leaving the European Union with uh, Singapore, with Vietnam. They're, they're all rolling in Japan um, because the political will is there to get a deal done. And so it tells me a lot that it's still going down to the wire about the real political will to get that deal done between the UK and the EU. But I hope that they find it because my gosh, do we need a deal to help us right now through this moment in time on both sides. You know, this is time for political posturing to stop. This is what used to drive me nuts about uh, being a politician was having to deal with other politicians that just want to posture all the time. This is real people's jobs. You know, this is real supply chains. This is real pressure to business that we could exacerbate what's been happening this last year if we don't get it right. So I hope that they see that bigger picture and that they find a way to, to help both sides continue their businesses and then continue that employment. Mm. Yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? I, I, a bit like you, really. Oh, it's a seat at the table. We'll talk about that later as the, the, the minister campaign. But yeah, just, just being in there to understand what's going on because you just feel like yeah you get these these little tidbits so uh, yeah if you had a, if you had a hunch what do you think do you think we're going to we're going to what's the word they keep using crash out or do you think we'll get a deal i won't hold you to it don't worry we can delete this uh, in a week's I, time I, th we I think they do want to get a deal done um, and it's just what it costs us at the end of the day okay. so they'll be they'll, they'll know what they've got on both sides of the sheet we'll see how that that uh, pans out for us um, but we just need to know because yeah. you know 31st of December is fast arriving and 2021 and all the challenges that we're going to have next year are yeah. already there and we can either make it more complicated or we can crack on. Well, I look forward to watching the movie about it, though I'm sure it feels very uh, feels very suspenseful. Um, so you've obviously given this some thought over the time. Have you got sort of, you know, one thing, I suppose, that, or, or maybe a couple of things, but what's going to be the best thing about leaving? What's going to be the worst thing, do you think, from your uh, experience? The best thing about leaving should be the deregulation that we can um, undertake, that we can peel back uh, unnecessary legislation that's holding us back from growth and uh, you know so that's really what I hope that we'll see that we can look at new ways of doing taxation that we can break free from the constrictions that we had um, on VAT for example and we can look at doing things in a new way to make us really competitive because we're going to have to go out and compete with the rest of the world now so you know doing that deregulation obviously if we don't get a deal there will be disruption and disruption to our supply chains disruptions to the perception that in you know the UK is open to business and it's open to visitors. You know, we're hospitality. We are uh, an essential part of the uh, tourism offer that we have in the United Kingdom. And we don't want the message to go out there that we're closing down hmm. and we're battening down the hatches. So we do have a big piece of work to make sure that that negative perception apparently about, you know, the UK is out there, um, hmm. that we are challenging that. Okay. We'll probably come back to that when we talk about yeah how the government perceive us, I suppose, as an industry. A um, couple of other quick things then on your past life. I've got to ask this one because it, I, I read it so many times and I still didn't understand what it was. What is the Commonwealth Forum and Director of Global Policy for the Sports Integrity Global Alliance? And, <laughs> I think that's and did two you work on oh, together. Yeah. Oh, okay, good. Because I kept reading it and I was like, wow, I'm sure it was on your, your, your digital CV. So Yeah, okay. I mean, before 
before I was a politician, I actually worked for the Rugby Football Union. So I did an awful lot of work in sport, um, in uh, bringing the World Cup to, to the UK. I read that. Um, pretty cool. And, uh, and so I did a lot of work in and around sports integrity as well. Um, in my time in the European Parliament, um, where we, they had a competence to legislate on sport as well. Um, but also, I was always a champion, obviously, of, of, of the Commonwealth family that we have. And particularly coming out of um, the, the European Union, we need to look to our old family and trading partners around the world and strengthening those ties. So I was the chairman of the Commonwealth Forum in Brussels as well. So, and actually neating those two together, you know, hosting the Commonwealth Games in 2022. I was part of discussions in and around that as well. And I hope that we will be as well and put on a fantastic games when they finally land. Amazing. It feels wrong that we're saying uh, Salisbury. I feel like I should be in Brussels, you know, in the <laughs> HQ of where it all happens. But uh, here we are. Also, Ivers Academy. I'd never heard of Ivers Academy. What? What is that? Um, it's the uh, body that actually represents songwriters and composers um, in the United Kingdom. And it hosts and puts on the Ivor Novello Awards, the Songwriter uh, Awards. Course, yeah. So they're like the Oscars in the music world, our version of the Grammys. Uh, and um, yeah, music is a passion. I'm, I'm a daughter of a musician. Uh, my father was a, a drummer in a band, a um, bit of a rock star. And, and so I've always been passionate about music. And so I'm really lucky that by being an independent director for the Ivor's Academy, I get to also keep Championing something else that I'm really yeah. passionate about. Okay, so in in the sort of thing that I thought there was at least five or six podcasts in chatting to you, but just very quickly because because I guess P, you know PRS PPL that always comes up in in hospitality world as being um, that's like a dark art. I think it always is of trying to work out you know what we get charged and how we get charged and why. Is there any link with that with the Ivers Academy? And does does the money that we pay genuinely get back to the artists, or are these two things completely not linked together whatsoever? Well, these, these are players that I've been working with um, uh, for many years in my work inside the European Parliament, where we would dealing actually with a copyright directive and making sure that artists get fair remuneration from their um, from their music and I think that we'll be able to redress that uh, relationship and look at that again um, particularly in the light of the the pandemic because I think we recognize that we're very very much in the same ecosystem and that we have to have pubs and, and then the music and then the royalties and then the payments that come in but they have to be fair and equitable for for everybody um, but actually that we are more intertwined than perhaps we realized before and so that music you know is the life and soul I have to say and without it you know the pubs in Scotland um, it, it really did feel like the, the soul had been ripped out of those venues on top of everything else that was there so we do need to put um, um, uh, you know a, a focus on our relationship with music and those associations as well that deal with them on behalf of their artists because uh, you know like watching a movie uh, without a soundtrack I think a pub without some music can be quite, mm. quite a sad place to be yeah sometimes. no oh god yeah you really notice it uh, uh, particularly hotels, I think, who aren't always very good at having that sort of background. Whereas, what was I the other day? Somewhere. Oh, yeah, I was in a little cafe in a park and uh, I was just helping them out. They'd asked me to come in and have a look at this this cafe to see what we could do to improve it. And I was like, you know what you need to do straight away? Just put the radio on. It's like this horrible, deathly silence. You can hear the cutlery clanking. So it is absolutely vital. And uh, one of the things that came up, they're like, we're nervous because if we put the radio on, then we've got to pay for a, a PRS license or something like that and how much it was going to cost. And this cafe, you know, it was a, it's a community cafe, not for profit. I don't know if the, if the rules are different. But yeah, it feels like it's something else that needs to be looking at. Like you said, we've probably not got time really to go to delve into the depths of that, but that could be another episode.
Um, and then the other random one. So the, one of the reasons I launched this podcast was because I listened to a podcast about blockchains and I thought, my goodness, what a fascinating uh, subject that is and where else could you get that information uh, in, in such a sort of weird niche without a podcast? It was actually a motivation for me launching one in hospitality. You were in that world once. I'm not going to dive into it too deeply, but can you just give any examples of something that you think blockchains are going are gonna to have an impact on our lives, I suppose? Um, blockchain's already having a major impact on our lives and we don't even know it. Exactly. You know? And everything, every device that you're using, the way that we're tracking and tracing right now, it will all be using blockchain. Um, and it is phenomenal, actually. It's been around a very long time, but we've only really started talking about it in the last sort of four or five years. Um, and it, so it's already being deployed as a solution to many of our problems that we have today. And sometimes it's not even problems. It can just be streamlining processes and making things easier. It injects trust into those relationships that we have, into those transactions. So um, it can really strengthen that. And particularly, again, that consumer-customer um, relationship, it can inject that kind of confidence in the collection of data, anything like that, that we're looking and using blockchain to do. Um, but, you know, it's, it's phenomenal. It can, particularly in from a trading perspective as well, it can in inject some real confidence and trust into those trading relationships. So when you're sending stuff to Africa or wherever you are in Asia or whatever, you know, all of those transactions, all those customs forms can be all digitized, put online. That verification can be there. No more of these brown envelope stuff of money to get stuff moving from A to B. It can really help um, streamline those processes and, and get things moving. And I think inject confidence into brand new relationships or old ones that we've perhaps had some problems of trust in before. So yeah, technology is fascinating. Mm. And the innovation that we can bring into hospitality, as we've already discovered through the crisis, it's forced us to do that innovation, bring in new apps, bring in track and trace systems. Um, I think that is the future, definitely the way that we're going to be operating and, and working that relationship with our consumers mm. in the future. So it's been perhaps a more positive um, aspect of what the, the pandemic has left us with. Definitely, yeah. That was impressive that you managed to shoehorn. I mean, I, I, I didn't do very well at trying to find a segue into blockchains, but you managed to link it to hospitality some way, which was particularly impressive. I've been trying to work out just because I find it interesting. And I think blockchains always come up in the sort of context of cryptocurrencies generally in day-to-day, -day. Not, not in most people's day-to-day -day conversation, but if it does come up. Um, but yeah, I was always trying to find an angle. Like, how can I get uh, blockchains into hospitality so that I can go and have an hour's conversation with someone? So you just gave me a little, a little a glimmer of hope there that I might be able to find something um, to hang that on. But we'll look, we'll look into that in, in another episode. So um, we better get back to the, the BPBA, and, I, and hopefully I'll get faster at saying that uh, over time, but it's still better than saying the British Peers Association, which is how this started. So um, what do they do, apart from have a really long name? Oh, the British Beer and Pub Association, um, you know, phenomenal organisation. Over, we represent over 90% of the people that brew in the UK and over 20,000 of our pubs, so nearly half of the pubs as well. Um, so we represent their interests and in peacetime, we would be trying to help sculpt that environment uh, the business environment, regulatory environment that they're having to do to increase growth um, uh, and employment in the sector, investment and belief and confidence. In the pandemic, I have to say we're dealing with you know a lot of firefighting, trying to secure that support. We've secured 5.1 billion today, I think, in terms of um, support for the sector um, and just making sure that we're working with the government as much as we possibly can to, to shape the guidance that's going around for us, safer workplaces, but also to 
make sure that we're finding not only um, a way to survive through this crisis, but how to roadmap our way out mm. of it. Because my goodness, we need to remove these restrictions to allow us to trade our way out of this recovery. It's what we want to do, but we need a body such as the BBPA um, to be lobbying hard for it. And that's what we do day in, day out. Yeah, no, you're right. We do just just want to trade out of it. it sounds like a big number, that 5.1 billion. What, 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 uh, what's that in, from a support terms? What sort of things are you talking about? Oh, um, from furlough, from the original grants that were rolled out, the discretionary grants that have been pledged, the additional 1K grants that were worth 40 million to the sector, um, additional support funds that have supported our brewers to the tune of 250 million as well. So, you know, there are many different things that have come together to create that package, but it is significant what we've managed to achieve versus other sectors, I have to say. You know, we, we have received an awful lot of support. We know that it's not enough to see us through closures and further lockdowns, which is what we keep reminding the government of. Mm. Um, but that dialogue is there. It remains open. And that's the most important thing right now so that we can find a way through and keep as many of our pubs uh, and brewers going throughout this crisis. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. I had some uh, troll on the internet the other day asking me, you know, how much money I'd been given by the government for, <laughs> uh, for some reason. And, and the answer was, in my head, £3,000. It's probably a little bit um, simplifying it. But you know, my businesses were all over the 51k rateable value. So we didn't qualify for any grants. Obviously, we had furlough, but I sort of make the point that every single penny from furlough went to the teams, not to the business. And we actually pay some of the NI and some of the pension costs. So it doesn't really necessarily feel uh, a value to, to the... Uh, it's obviously a value and it's exceptionally useful, but doesn't feel like money into the business. Business, I suppose. Uh, and then we look at the most recent lockdown in November. You know, we were losing £1,000 a day as a business and we got given uh, £3,000 for November. And now we're trading at, you know, sort of less than 50% of our trade. We don't qualify for a penny. So I think the perception from the public is that, you know, we're having money thrown at us from a sector. But I'm like, look, this has been, you know, nine months of trauma and the actual business has had 3K people talk about the VAT cut and you know but VAT is a percentage of turnover if you're closed or you're taking bugger all money then you know obviously again exceptionally helpful but on the few days that you can open um, but yeah it must be a real challenge because on one side you must have pubs telling you just how bloody hard it is you know and, and how, how how many are going to the wall and the flip side is you must have the government saying to you 5.1 billion pounds of support you know is, is, a, is a hell of a lot of cash uh, that must be a challenging tightrope to walk when you've only been in the role for a short period of time well it, it is and, and, and your version of events is is a very common story that I hear all the time and people forget that some people haven't received anything we do make that um, very apparent to the government it's like you keep claiming all the support but remember when we told you that all these people over 51k are outside of that bracket you know, they are under pressure and they are some of our larger employers, our larger fixed costs. You know, they've got to find a way to survive through this period of time. Um, but it's also been difficult because we've had to then follow it and break the United Kingdom down, working with devolved administrations, different packages, different grants, different rules, different implementation. Um, and it has been extraordinary uh, trying to bring it down even to local authority level, talking to councils about it. You know, some councils want to do more. Others can't even roll out the schemes and the grants that they've been given. So trying to put pressure on the government on those local authorities to understand the cash burn effect that's going on now the cash flow situation that's being impacted now and that we don't have time to wait for grants to roll in even if they are coming we need help urgently to get that through so you know, we fed that into the machine sometimes the computer says yes but more often than not now it's saying no to hospitality and it is enormously frustrating i can tell you because we've laid out all the facts it's clear to see um the other people are doing that for us now actually that economic argument is being made by others but if they're trying to unpick their good work they could do that very very quickly so we do say to them you've given us an awful lot 
don't fall at the final hurdle. You know, mm. businesses in hospitality, they survive on margins. You know, they, they have very tight cash flow situations um, and lenders are only prepared to, to listen to them for so long without some certainty to plan for the future. So we have to find a way that we don't undo all that good work and that we can still actually give people jobs in the new year because yeah. you have to protect that business model. Definitely, yeah. And, and you know, furlough was, was nationwide. It was for all sectors. It wasn't just hospitality, I think, wasn't it? You know, if there'd been a, a different model, I suppose now it's it's, it's more relevant for, for hospitality. Um, so, you know, 20,000 pubs, 90% uh, of brewers, amazing. You know, you, you represent a big sector of hospitality um, this is the, the you know the humans of hospitality podcast so it's the broader side of it i suppose how, how do you work with other groups so uk hospitality for example comes up a lot do you guys you know do you complement each other do you work together or? oh very much so um, and even more so during the pandemic and i think it has actually been one of our strengths that we have worked together that we have all rode in with uh, the bii as well uh, with camera and Sibra when we can and others to work together to say we need help we need it now because we are all part of the same ecosystem and we want to save every part of that because you know you can't just save one part you know it's the whole ecosystem that we need to, to to really represent and so that's what's been i think very powerful about working together coming together on issues where we can mm. um and making sure that our voice really is heard and mm. that it's consistent in our messaging and, and do you share a pretty similar perspective and a consistent message are there areas where you disagree with each other or no, we, we, i don't think we disagree we'll have a different view um and that that's to be seen because we're um representing different parts of that ecosystem but essentially you have to see the bigger picture again and see that all together we're stronger yeah and um, if we can find a way that we can hang together then that then we should. I'm laughing because I imagine that with your 10 years of experience negotiating the EU, I wouldn't want to go into a negotiation battle with you. So, no, 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 of course, we all agree with each other and where we don't, I win. Uh, right, so um, what's the, how does that work from a relationship with the, with the government perspective? You know, how does it work? Do you, do you, you know, have you got Rishi's mobile number? Is it a case of phoning him up and going, look, you know, what's the route into government and how good are they at uh, opening the doors and listening? Uh, I have many mobile telephone numbers. Um, Can I have to, unfortunately, he isn't one oh, of them. Damn. But um, uh, I, I think he's probably changed his number about 10 yeah, times probably. during this campaign yeah. but um you know it is uh, it is a significant thing having come from the, the the conservative party as a politician i know a lot of these players um and there have been moments where that personal connection has been helpful but um i think they recognize the role that the bbpa plays how important the british pub is i have to say um to us as a culture as part of our society part of who we are and our heritage and so you know we have been absolutely called in um, pretty much from day one um, to say, you know, come in, what what do we need to do to work with you? Um, I have to say there was a distinct shift in that level of cooperation um, in the summertime because we were very much helping them shape the guidance on the safer workplace, working with them about how the packages would roll out and be implemented. Um, that all seemed to come to a, an end in the summertime where they, they didn't consult with us as much. And that's been deeply frustrating to be in that situation because better decision-making is always made when you consult with industry. Mm. Um, and that's why... Um, they created the hospitality support unit in the first place because they recognised that they didn't have that knowledge and experience and they would have to bring that in. Um, and that's, uh, you know, something that we're very proud of at the, uh, the BBPA, that we had someone seconded um, to, to help set that up and, and get them on their way. But keeping that level of consultation is definitely 
waned. And mm. I think that we should see an introduction of that coming in if they really want to help the sector into an economic recovery. So it's interesting to hear because I think that's how the perception from the outside as well is it looked like we had a really good ear with the government in the early days. You know, it looked like we were getting some support. It looked like hospitality was important. I think we all recognise that, you know, it's it's the backbone of Britain for so many things. It's where anniversaries and birthdays and, and weddings and business meetings and events, you know, we feed people who are going to work in the morning, you know, grabbing their coffee and a, and a croissant on the way into the office. You know, it just feels like we should be these sort of capillaries, I suppose, you know, through the network of, of society. So it feels like we should be really important. Looked like we were actually getting somewhere. It was like, oh my goodness, hospitality has been recognised. It was sort of us and the NHS in some ways, not, not putting them on the same level. But, you know, the, the, the sector stood up and it started feeding the vulnerable. We started to make sure that our key workers were being housed. And it was, you know, it was a good, good time to go, okay, that's good. You know, it's been recognised. We Maybe we'll come out of this with some better recognition. Uh, and then I wonder what happened in the summer because it, it looked like it all just got switched off. And it's like, look, you had, you know, you had some support. Some of you got some grants. You know, we did furlough. You had to eat out to help out and that's it. Bang, it's all over. And then we're all sort of here going, hang on, we're, we're still here. And, and it's only getting worse. And, and it actually became... The opposite it was kind of like okay so now you know i, I there's a local uh, theater in my town i know there's 450 people going to the theater on saturday night who can all have a beer and go and enjoy a show and that's great but i can't meet my mum for a coffee you know like, not only did it feel like the relationship sort of stopped but it, it felt like actually we're now getting you know the blame you can go into a into a really busy retail shop and stand in a queue with you know sort of 200 other people in the shop and buy some stuff but you can you can't go and meet you know a, a friend for half a lager why did it break down? Well, not, not did it break down, but why did why did that communication stop? Do you think in the summer? Um, I, I think uh, there is a summer parliamentary recess. Uh, politicians step away from the machine. We didn't stop lobbying at all. We were working all the way through, communicating one way, but the transmission was definitely um, a, a one way <laughs> transmission at that stage, and um, it, it made a difference. So I think the civil servants panicked at the beginning, and they needed us to help inform them how to move forward. And then they kind of caught up with it and then they run the show during the summer recess. And so we came back and advice had been put up, perhaps from people that didn't have the experience or knowledge from the sector. And that was enormously frustrating, but that, that that's my own take on taking your eye um, off the ball for, from a political sense, I would say. Um, so yeah, it is, it is really, really frustrating situation but one one that we keep banging on about we keep keep going at the machine we keep writing we keep talking we keep pressuring um and we use the media and um, we've got an enormous traction with them um in and around our story and people really wanting to get behind our great british brewers and our great british pub um so you know they can you know we have a love-hate relationship with the media sometimes but actually when the politicians stop talking then they really rattle that machine mm, okay interesting as much as anything i suppose it's you know when when you were directly involved we did, we did it for even if it was only maybe 24 hours or 48 hours notice we felt that you guys as a sector were at least trying to communicate with us mildly in advance um certainly recently it's been like you know everything gets announced by the press first isn't it two days before the government even announced it and and you know i've got my heart breaks for what's happened in london now you know they would have been better off staying shut i'm sure than being allowed to open for 10 days that investment in you know in christmas decorations and crackers and napkins and specially printed menus it's not it's not like opening in a normal month there's a huge amount of investment to get open for the festive period 
period to trade for 10 days and then get closed again. I mean, it, it's just more money that's leaked out of all of those businesses, isn't it? It's heartbreaking. You just feel it is that lack of comprehension. And then the amount of stock that will, and it won't be thrown away because they will step up and they'll, they'll send it to charities and stuff. But you just think it couldn't be a worse time, really. You know, 10 days before Christmas to be to be closed down. Yeah, um, yeah tough. That's not really a question there. It was no, but I just but... want to make the point again about what really shifted. And I think that because as a sector, we've been really, really good at perhaps getting that early day traction with the government. Everything, you know, hospitality did get a lot of uh, early on support. And I think that other sectors weren't quite so engaged and quick off the mark. And I think they started to complain that they weren't getting the look in, you know. So now we hear from the politicians, everyone's screaming at us. Um, it's not just your sector, it's everybody else. But, you know, you've absolutely outlined it. You know, pubs are open for 13 days, having to close again, anything from 4 to 8K every time they close and reopen again um, in terms of that reinvestment. Um, it, it is heartbreaking. And, mm. and this isn't any of the months. This is the Christmas month. This is our biggest, uh, you know, and busiest time of the year. Mm. And without it, you know, we really, really will struggle mm. to, to, to find a way forward into the new year. Um, so this is, um, again, the problem that we have with very short notices, which we've always consistently told them that we need more uh, more notice on. Um, but they need to recognise the the extra actual waste that we're going to have this year, um, uh, and particularly from this month and this lockdown. What they have done... Uh, ironically now it's probably galvanized the sector more than I've ever seen it before you know, we mentioned again before we started chatting I was on a call with with Robin Hudson and Tom Kerridge and Angela Hartner last week all about um, the campaign for a minister for hospitality and this seemed to be a little bit divisive so again interested to get your perspective because you've been on both sides of the camp I suppose in and out of government um, so on one side I think you know the, the industry stood up and said look you know this just doesn't make sense we've invested all these you know tens of millions of pounds in PPE and training you know the, the transmission rate has been proven to be low in hospitality we're utterly convinced that you know, it's, it's, it's more of a problem socialising in people's houses than there is meeting in sort of well-licensed, well-regulated premises. You know, the 10pm curfew, there's so many examples of things. And everyone's gone, oh my God, like they literally, they do not get it, what's going on. So there's now a campaign to say, look, not only do we need people knocking on the door from the outside, such as you guys and such as UK hospitality, but we need somebody on the inside. The flip side is that, is that there's been a minister for tourism historically, which only lasted, I think, eight, eight months was the average amount of time. There was a minister for pubs before. You know, are we better off having a you know, being called in and, and potentially, you know, getting to number 11 or getting to number 10 and bypassing, is it likely that they'll just appoint a, a junior minister who comes out and almost gets in the way because you've got to go through them to get to government? Or do you think as a sector and as an industry, if we are galvanised enough, where we do employ, you know, with our support services up to 5 million people, um, where we do generate so much cash, can it be an important enough sector to actually get a senior minister and what's your thoughts around that that topic I, I think the seat at the table campaign is uh, is a good one because it's creating more noise more noise about how important our sector is um, whether we'll actually get that minister for hospitality I'm not so sure we do have a minister for tourism they sit within DCMS um, and then we have uh, uh, you know pubs uh, um, being represented within the, and hospitality within bays and then decisions about the taxation of that of course being made in treasury and sometimes it does feel that there is an awful lot of lobbying has to take place to get the same 
the same decision taken, but it all ends up leading back to, to the Treasury at the end of the day. I think it would be great if we could uh, secure that knowledge base within the civil service. You know, so the ministers will come and go and they'll take their little bit of knowledge and experience with them. But actually, it's the people and the, the people that work there. And I, I'm pleased to say that that hospitality support unit has now been given a longer life. Um, it will now be there for a three year period of time. And so that's going to be built in. And I hope they recognize that they do need to have experience in the hospitality sector if it still wants us to employ the millions of people that we do. Um, and a million of those are within beer and pubs. Mm. Okay, interesting. Well, look, I could talk about that all day, but I, I, I want to sort of broaden it out a little bit from, from COVID specifically, I suppose. The sector in general, the pub sector, had this sort of, uh, I just want to understand what's going on out there, I suppose. There'd, there'd been sort of conversations that, you know, wet-led pubs were failing. You see issues coming up or, or opportunities around community pubs. There's there's clearly been a drop-off. There was a drop-off in beer sales, I think. Is it something like, uh, was it 14,000 less pubs now than there were, you know, 20 years ago? What's going on out there in, in the pub sector in general? It's a broad topic, but oh uh, what's... my goodness! I mean, if you look at it as pre-pandemic, we 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 were doing okay. You know, given the fact that we were operating under a massive tax burden, we were we were we were thriving uh, and getting there and and doing well. But that was down to the really hard work of people in hospitality, like yourself, um, because you know, in the face of all that tax burden, it takes a lot of effort to actually get get that kind of progress now with the pandemic that we see here you know we're seeing it is going to get extremely tough for people extremely tough for businesses out there to keep operating and to find those deep reserves that they need of extra energy to keep change with the rule changes every time cycling up and down tiers um, and understanding how they're supposed to operate week from week or day to day even in some places it's going to get really tough the, the vision in the, some of the politicians' minds about what wet-led pub is, is, you know, a man with a flat cap and a whip it stood with sawdust on the floor. You know, they really genuinely don't have a sense of that. And even the wet-led pub, you know, really changed in the last sort of 10, 15 years, you know, really making itself um, unique again uh, and a really good offer there for our communities up and down the country. And to be left outside of that based on a very old-fashioned view of what that pub is like and the behaviour inside these pubs, you know, it does... You you know, it's really, really unfair. So they're going to need specific help if they're going to see themselves get through this crisis because, you know, with a substantial meal being imposed upon them, it's going to get really tough. But it's going to be tough for everybody out there. Make mm. no mistake. But, you know, we have a very great and resilient industry, something we should be enormously proud of. But, you know, there isn't a lot of innovation and I think we have to tell the story of that innovation so that people can see it. Mm. And um, so they don't just think that we're this old traditional industry that will yeah. just always get by somehow. That is the worry, I think, isn't it? Is it's, like you say, that that perception, and I see it, you know, such an important part of, uh, of the, you know, the reason for being human is that opportunity to socialise. And, and if, uh, you know, all too often the pub is the only place, you know, in the, in the village or in the town and, uh, you know, where, where people go and, you know, you mix with their peers and, and where conversations and ideas happen and you know so, well, I mean, so we're a huge community asset yeah, you know above be. and beyond the economic contributions mm. we make the one that we do in social value to our society is phenomenal yes. and um, it is something that we need to tell the story of more yeah. and more yeah. it's the last community asset in many towns and villages and our high street was struggling before we went into this and now we've created literally ghost towns um, so if they want us to come back and be that beating heart of our communities and of our high streets up and down the country then we're going to need a strategic plan to do that mm. and we're going to need investment as well well i'm going to come on to where how do we get out of this situation just before we do so the, the office of national statistics came out i think it was maybe even this morning 
warming, saying 27.9% of pub and bar businesses had low or no confidence in surviving the next three months. I've seen other numbers. I think there's something like 40,000 pubs in there, is there at the moment and that maybe 10,000 wouldn't reopen. Have you done any research around this? What's the sort of, what's your feeling on, you know, are we really going to lose 10,000 pubs in the next three months? We've done some research with Oxford Economics, I have to say back in September before the new tiering system was introduced and uh, they were already modelling out that we could lose 12,000 12, pubs. That would be 25% of uh, our pubs in the United Kingdom. Um, and that would equal about 290,000 jobs. I have to say, and this is what I say to the politicians based on that uh, research, is that actually what we're seeing now is an acceleration of that with the, the tier restrictions that we have in place. Because people, even if they are able to open, as you say, you can't meet your mum for a, you know, a, a coffee. Um, you know, it is frustrating, you know, the limitations on them to do what they do. And the business model as a pub, you know, is, is under threat and uh, it's gonna get harder and harder if we don't find a way to do that. Any indication as to whether is that slanted towards the big pub sort of companies or is it the smaller independent sort of family pubs? Because you represent, you know, sort of both ends of that market. I suppose who's hurting the most? Oh, oh my goodness. I mean, that is a really, really tough question. But, you know, it, some people were in a stronger financial situation going into this crisis. They are the more resilient to come out of it, um, I have to say. Um, but you'd be really surprised, actually. The perception, I think, is that if you're part of a big company in a big, a big chain, you'll be safe. Actually, you know, it is really, really tough for everybody because they have so many more pubs to try to save, resource, fund. Um, and of course, the conversations that with banks and lenders and investors, they're getting tougher and tougher because there is so much uncertainty in the future. So you could see players going down small um, community-led pubs, bigger, bigger players, some of them are going to struggle to, to get through this. And this is why we keep saying to the government, we need hope on the horizon. We need an extension of business rates relief. VAT, we want that. I also extended the VAT discount to cover alcoholic beverages as well. Thank you very much. Uh, and that would also help our brewers. And that's something we can do post-Brexit, by the way. But um, And that's what we need. But we need them to make those commitments now, to inject that confidence now, so that we can actually use that when we're projecting what our forecasts and business plans going to be for mm. 2021 and other people will buy into that. Yeah, that seems to be a bit of a no-brainer and really obvious, particularly now that we've, you know, when, when the VAT cut was was put in place, you know, I'd make this point to a lot of people who say, oh, you've had a VAT cut. It's like, if you are closed or you're hardly trading, you know, it's a percentage of turnover at the end of the day. It's not useful if you're shut, you know, it doesn't make any difference what the VAT rate is. I'm not, I'm not paying anything. A uh, little bit, the same with, with business rates in some way. Like, it's a closed business. You know, how on earth can you charge it? Feels like like a no-brainer to say now now that we you know we've lost christmas trade in essence we've lost christmas parties whatever tier you're in you know you can't have a, a proper christmas party um we know we're coming into what's what's often the worst time of the year anyway with january and february we're all holding out for spring and really you know hoping for the best but key decisions are being made now we're limping through it feels like if the government did say that if they did say right well it's you know we'll give you an, a full trading year basically we'll give you a financial year from april with yeah no no business rates uh, continue with the reduced vat that it would then give the confidence and go okay you know it's going to be a, a, a shit show for the next 12 weeks basically um i don't really understand why they're not saying that it's not like we've got many things to glimmer sort of hope for as a sector is it? it's just you know continued bad news why are they not making that decision faster do you think um it is frustrating because it seems so obvious to do that and that's what other countries have done as well like in france for example they've guaranteed you know that that support will be there throughout the whole of 2021 and and that gives a resilience to the sector to keep going um, and to find a way through this crisis and whatever lockdowns are coming down the road 
they can already know that with that security in place that they can keep open and, and trading it at some point in the future. Um, is it because their magic calculator is broken? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe they'll get one in a cracker this year, and it will come out with the right yeah. numbers for us. But they don't, you know, because it feels like a very simple, you know, question. Because I, I, I said it again earlier, you know, we're, we're uh, losing a thousand pounds a day at the moment as a business. You think, okay, you know, how long can you hold it? I borrowed three hundred thousand pounds C bills. You know, it's not the ideal way to get out of the scenario. But everybody's burning cash, and you just, yeah, you just want to have that confidence to go. Look, it's worth borrowing the money. It's worth hanging on because we can trade out of this. It feels like a very simple question to ask the government I take it you, you just don't get an answer oh, oh we do we ask continually <laughs> well, they say maybe yes or no and they, they always say that they are a very very generous scheme one of the most generous in the world uh, and that we've received world an awful beating. lot but they don't recognise just how much is being burnt in the background and just how even even with all the support they've given us just how precarious a situation that we are in and um, you know I think many of them need to actually go out and visit their local pub, uh, or many of them, um, because they need to have a better understanding of what it takes and the people in that pub and what it means to those communities because it is an investment in us. It's an investment in our hospitality sector. It's an investment in those jobs. It's an investment in those businesses as engines for growth and for levelling up. We're everywhere in the United Kingdom, but also an investment in those communities. We're a 23 billion economy to, to, to the government. The contributions that we make, if they don't give us investment incentives now, um, then we could be gone and then they will be an awful lot poorer in themselves. Mm. Yeah, exactly. I, I don't see it. I mean, I know you know how much we bring in through, through taxation and all that kind of stuff. Um, but it is, you know, it's the fact that you and I are now having a business meeting sat in a pub. You know, I've seen the meetings that go on outside. I remember a couple of guys having a meeting and it was it was a kind of multi-million pound deal that they were doing, you know, in the sunshine, shout out, sat on my terrace. They asked me to, to, to join them. And it was a big company. It was WH Smiths and, and, a, and a dying card thing that was being set up. And these were a couple of directors of that. And you sit there and, you, you know, you witness these conversations, you know, across the country, people are using them as, as sort of meetings places. It, you know, it makes sense that that's where deals are done, isn't it? You know, sort of chewing the fat over a meal or over a cup of coffee, much more important than the actual taxes we pay is the facilitation of an industry um so i, I find it mind-blowing that, that they just don't seem to don't seem to get it listen well you can't just put us in the deep freeze you know the the engine is gonna seize up if we don't keep it ticking over and uh if they want to just believe that we can just fire it back on again they really do need to uh Welcome, wake yeah, up and smell the coffee. They do. Okay. So um, much as I wasn't going to spend as much time now that we're down this rabbit hole, um, you mentioned a little bit just now about European support as a, as a contrast. And I was reading something last week, and, and again, it doesn't seem to get maybe the press dominance that it should, but I thought it was, it was either Germany or France coming out saying they would cover 90% of business costs for the next four months because they were going into another lockdown. And it looked like... You know, they'd all stepped up, France and Germany in particular, I suppose, but they were stepping up and, and, and sort of increasing the support that was available off the back of another lockdown. We seem to have gone in and gone, right, you can get £1,000 a month if you're a wet-led pub, you know, which is like just one day of my losses. Nothing if you're in any other part of the sector, but you've still got furlough for the teams. Any, any rumours that they are going to do more? And do you know any of the details of what's happening in Europe? Do you sort of collate that information so you can present it to the government? Does that not have an impact? If we say, look, Belgium, France, Germany, Finland, Norway, whatever, here's a list of what everybody else is doing. They say they want to be world beating, but um, yeah, don't, don't. Absolutely. And we do. And we send it in, which is rather worrying because they should be monitoring that themselves. Um, I, and we have asked them in many circumstances to look at the examples of the level of support that's been given, that surety throughout the rest of 2021. Um, um, and also the impact and actually 
equating the support that they've given to what the turnover is that's lost and, and looking at the impact that that's had on them and giving them some equivalence to it. And the schemes all do run in different ways, I have to say, um, but you know, some are more generous than others. But the reality is, is that they've given them that confidence throughout next year, throughout the period of crisis. We feel that we're moving week to week now. You know, we've got two months, uh, two weeks um, for every review of the tier system. But are you only going to have confidence really for the first week? Because then if it shifts every two weeks, I mean, you can't plan businesses on that basis. So it's getting them to understand we need a longer term view to help us through this crisis. We cannot keep firefighting every day. At some point, we're going to have to, to look at how we can survive for longer. Yeah. Okay. So before pandemic, there was a few issues you were looking at anyway, recognising all the good stuff that we do. You clearly know that. And one of the examples, for example, was uh, beer duty, I think, wasn't it? We're second only to Finland in the whole of Europe. Is that right? In the fact that we pay the most duty on beer. We do. Um, Yeah. It is phenomenal. Why do we do that? Oh. We love beer. I love that. Actually, on your website, people should go and have a look. There's a great um, sort of, uh, what's the word, sort of chronological what happened with beer in the UK. And I can't remember when it was, but it was um, it was something to do with uh, Hampton Court, I think, in London. And at one point, uh, they were consuming something insane, you know, number of pints of beer. It was like 18,000 a day or something. They had two breweries on site. And I think you had an allocation if you were a lord, you got something like two gallons. But even if you were a sort of, you know, peasant, you got four pints a day. And it was just, you know, really, really fascinating history. So how do we go from that? How do we go fundamentally from beer is safer than water I to know. the fact that we're the most taxed country in Europe. Beer is good for you. Lots of vitamins, nutrients inside it. You know, that's that's the kind of the history that we've had and, and why our brewers' families are so, so family trees are so prolific because, you know, they were healthier because they were drinking beer instead of uh, uh, unsafe water. Um, the perception is in and around alcohol that alcohol is a bad thing and therefore it's easier to keep taxing and taxing and taxing again. But it is really it doesn't really twine with um, how important our beer reputation is globally. Um, And if you look at countries like Germany, for example, uh, we pay 11 times more tax than they do in Germany. Um, And, but they support them with phenomenally low duty rates um, and support the sector to do that. And then what do they do? They have a huge springboard they've created then domestically for them to then export globally, where we know that German beer has a a huge um, export and uh, reputation worldwide. Um, And we could do the same for the United Kingdom and I know that we have that reputation but I don't think we use it and they need to look at giving us that springboard particularly now with uh, Global Britain and the new vision that we've got to say you know we're supporting our domestic producers at home as they do in those other countries and we're going to help them at this moment in time and hopefully that'll be a springboard for us to do that and look at other opportunities when we've got that support back at home but you know the duty discussion it comes around every budget and it's one that we're always championing because it makes such a difference if you look at the taxation our brewers are paying you know 50% of what they uh, they make they're paying out in taxation and they're paying phenomenal rates more than amazon mm. and your other online retailers in terms of tax so if the government really wants to start looking at new and innovative ways to raise tax it might have to look at how it's going to do that on the digital Mm. and and is the argument always health because again it feels like that misconception to say that you know a tiny minority of people you know might be uh, you know using it as as an abusive you know sort of subject or consumption which would be the same for painkillers or you know other things there's always going to be a percentage of people that abuse stuff but the vast majority of people i mean you know drinking 
seems to be going down from a quantity perspective. You know, we, we, we still want to drink, but we want to drink less, but we want to drink better. You know, we're more interested in, in where that beer comes from and how it's made and all that kind of stuff. And that feels like a good thing. It's kind of like, yeah, be interested. Um, is, is, is health always the reason that they say that's why we don't reduce it? Because you can clearly see that reducing it would be better for international export. It would be better for the, for the sector. It would be better for employment, all that kind of stuff. Is it, is it just health? Is that it? I, I think they, they, they just like to make sort of demonise certain sectors because it makes it easier for them to, to keep a higher taxation policy in place for them. They are looking at the alcohol duty review as we speak. So that is one of the things we're having to keep an eye on whilst the pandemic's going on as well. And I hope that they really, they say that they're open to be looking at new ways of raising revenue, but I hope that they do and they have to look at the modern world we live in today. And actually, you know, if we're talking about it from a health perspective, beer's got a great story you have to tell. You know, we're a low volume um, uh, product. Um, we drink in moderation. Um, and, and that's something that actually we should be given a significant dif discount as, uh, as a category, as beer. Uh, and that's why we champion the duty cut so much on that. So, you know, for me, I think we need to keep the pubs open because if you want to support drinking in moderation, that you do that within a pub, not when it's, you know, in an in a un, un, uh, unregulated environment in your house where, where, where you're drinking probably alone. And, and, and that's, that's the danger part. So we need the pubs to be there to create that right environment for social drinking and moderation. And we need a discount for low volume products mm. yeah well that's been the frustration again isn't it going back to that yes you can go to your supermarket and buy some cheap crappy beer and go and consume it in your house with your mates no problem but you can't go to the pub in a regulated environment but hey I'm trying to stay more stoic um, business rates I also found really interesting so I'm going to read this bit because uh, I hear it all the time but I wasn't really aware of the, of the stats so pubs pay 2.8% of all UK business rates but only generate 0.5% of rateable turnover this amounts to an overpayment of £500 million on average, a single pub pays some £140,000 per year in tax, which is around 34 pence in every pound of turnover goes to the taxman. That feels bonkers, doesn't it? I mean, rates, business rates keeps coming up in conversation. Again, you mentioned just now the digital between sort of digital and, and, and physical environment. Mm -hmm. Do you think they're getting that? Because with Apple and Amazon and all these big kind of companies, is now the time, and with COVID and this sort of, you know, one-year release, is now the time to actually make a fundamental change to that? And do you believe it will happen? Oh, they are also undertaking a review of business rates uh, right now as well on reform, but they need to accelerate it. They need to recognise that we can't be paying at 2015 rates now, um, that we are disproportionately paying higher rates um, as a sector, um, uh, you know, and, and, and it cannot be continued. We cannot operate on that basis and they need to fast forward this review to make sure that we are paying proportionate rates but you know we have to revisit the world of where we are i know it's easier for them to see our businesses you know the bricks and mortar there they are let's tax what we can see and the scale of a business the size of a business um but you know we're, we're under big threat here if you look at our high streets again they're also under threat because of that digital offer not paying anywhere near the tax levels that they need to um to to also you know account for the amount of business that they're stealing from us. And if we want to see thriving high streets, we're going to need to look at the business rates review. We're going to have to find other ways to raise um, revenue. And the government have got that task. And it's obvious.
previous where they could be looking to tap things up, perhaps with Biden around now, with Trump. Trump was hanging that over them if they introduced digital taxes, that he wouldn't do a deal. Perhaps that will change with Biden and they'll review their policy on that. But, you know, we're in a different situation now. We have to we have to find ways to keep and supporting our businesses at home. Yeah. And uh, first and foremost, that's what we need to do. Back to that level playing field thing kind of thing, isn't it? So we're not, you know, we probably all use Amazon. I've got I'm sat here with an iPhone and an iPad in my bag. You know, we're not necessarily anti these, but you just you just go, look, don't overtax being able to meet your mum for a coffee, you know, or your mate for a beer, so that those big companies can, you know, plough more money back into Silicon Valley. It's just level it out a little bit and, and we just need to to do this better. So I am a deluded optimist. For some reason, I think we will, but then I read back through the stats and go, my God, this has been going on for donkey's years, isn't it? It's not like, you know, we've not been doing it. I, I, it's beyond comprehension. It all comes back to me for the fact that, which I find surprising is just, it's just that they don't they don't get it. You know, they don't get the importance of the sector. It was it was undervalued, uh, underrespected for many years. It was seen as you know just somebody going to the pub and having a few pints. But you know, career opportunities, apprenticeships, young people, employment, this this thing about being a catalyst for business, it, it is so important. I really hope um, that we start to get some changes. Talking around um, the future a little bit more, and we're coming to a close. We're running out of time. But uh, interested in sort of technology again. You mentioned this with regards to blockchains, but. Where things are changing, I often feel as a restaurateur that my biggest competition is actually Netflix, which feels really weird, but it's kind of like, you know, that's what people are doing. I'm hoping, having been locked up for nigh on a year, that people are going to be really bored of it and they're going to come out. But even before um, the pandemic, you know, we felt like things like Deliveroo and Uber Eats and people have been able to get food at home and the fact that, you know, it's not just four channels anymore and people aren't bored because they can stick on Netflix. Do you think the pub sector... Um, is getting on board with that. Are, 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 you know, is, is Deliveroo and Uber and those kind of solutions, are they a positive or are they a negative for the pub sector, do you think? It's a tricky one, that one, isn't it? I think yes. first and foremost, I have to say, we have to win back public confidence. Your people have got very comfortable on their sofa in their houses and ordering in stuff and having making that experience at home and having a nice night in. You know, Saturday night has become every night in the house, isn't it, really? And 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 that's uh, something that we have to challenge ourselves or how, how, what offer can we put out there to give them confidence to come back out but also be enticing to them to come back in and deliver an Uber Eats have kept some of our businesses ticking over. Let's let's make no mistake, if you're in tier three, your only option is takeaway. And in lockdown, it was only takeaway. And for some people, it was a little bit of income that just kept them going in between. So those new partners that they made, partnerships that they made, yeah, they could continue. And I think that that is part of adapting. It's part of our resilience is looking at new business models that work for us. But it didn't work for everybody. I know lots of people tried takeaways and it didn't do the job for them. So they might see then deliver an Uber Eats as a competitor because they are basically taking their experience and their quality food and putting it into a different environment. So we have to find ways that we want to communicate with people and technology and being online and, and giving people a, a taste of that experience, what they'll find when they step through the door here, um, you know, with menus that you've got online, the ability to book your tables online. People, I think there are things from uh, the pandemic that people will like. I think table service has been a bit of a pain operationally perhaps, but I think customers have quite enjoyed that experience. So there'll be certain things that they want to know will continue and make Making sure that we have a digital footprint and one that people understand is really important and even things about how you enter a business and and you know and how it can be adaptable for, for lots of different people in society and making sure that we are more inclusive that they're you know disabled people can have a look 
at the venue, how many steps are there to get into the door? You know, all that kind of information, you can put that online. You can put the, the menus on for them, um, audio menus and things like that, and make it, make it more inclusive. Sell the pub back to people again before they've even left the door, but make sure that when they come in, they have an experience they want to come back for again and again. Yes, perfect. Okay. Uh, finally, I've got to ask, because uh, I suppose it's um, this sense of community and for me what hospitality is about. Community pubs, right? there seems to be a growing number of them. Is it? I just wonder if you know, is it an effective solution? Because pubs look like a really challenging environment. They're quite low margin. They're, they're tough to run businesses. I'm guessing that generally these opportunities come up when a pub has failed and then the community comes along and says, great, okay, I think we can run this better. And I sort of look at it and go, you probably can't. It's probably going to be as tough as hell and you're committing yourself. It's like that lifestyle business. Oh, that'd be lovely. You know, I'm going to run a pub. Do you get, you know, sort of any indication, I suppose, is, is, is this a growing area of the market? Um, do they survive? Uh, yeah, what's going on in that world? Yeah, no, I think that actually um, throughout the period of uh, the pandemic, people have missed the pub. It's like been the top, of the top five things that they've missed is, is going to their pub and, and people have actually been going back to their local when it has opened having maybe not used it as often as they used to because they want it to be there and there is a bit more fearful about it and there's certainly more of an urge to kind of save co as a community asset so I think we will see an increase in the community pubs um, and I don't know if you saw um, Saving Britain's pubs with, with Tom no, Kerry I heard really good stuff about um, it yeah, yeah no, but he, he followed um, the experience of four pubs trying to battle through before the pandemic and then as it hit so it was a really interesting um, sort of snapshot of pubs where they were what they needed to do then and what they need to do now to save themselves and one of them was a community pub and there are a lot of challenges you know it's not as simple as just buying the asset you know running that finding a business model that works taking that on it's not easy but you know I, I hope if the difference is between um, losing that pub for good or finding a way to make it work then absolutely the BPA stands to work with those community pubs to try and support them the best that we can yeah, amazing. Okay, and no, I think it's, it's really interesting. One I'll explore someday. In fact, I should go and interview one. Um, okay, so you know we're out of time. If you you, you seem, um, you know, I think as so many of us are in hospitality, you know, it's it's, a, it's an industry full of amazing sort of positive human beings, despite everything that's going on. Even seeing you know London get shut down again in the last few days, but seeing you know the, the same businesses, the same chefs stepping up and going right, who can we support? What charities can we support? You know, where do we send our food? Uh, it amazes me that it you know, that, that I you know, was watching my Twitter feed and it wasn't full of you know sort of suicidal thoughts and people being really depressed. They were annoyed, they're angry, they feel let down, they don't understand it. They're actually still a, you know, generally very positive. What's your thoughts? You know, you, you took on this role having no idea that we were going to go into a pandemic. Um, if you look ahead at the next sort of 12 or 18 months, you know, maybe two years, what's your thoughts on things that might change? Some of the objectives, I suppose, of the, of the uh, association and what you wanted to achieve in the early days. Are you still optimistic about, you know, where we're going to be? Uh, what's, what do you think is the, the next two years has in store for us? Goodness me, I think Q1 is is definitely still feels like we're just um, still going to be in firefighting mode and, and, and uh, trying to get us through to Easter and carry as many of our members and pubs and uh, industry with us as we possibly can. Um, but beyond that, there is always the things that I wanted to achieve when I first came through the door, you know, refreshing the BBPA, making sure that we reflect the, the modern and innovative side of the industry um, today. And we are changing and adapting and we need to tell that story about how we're changing and adapting, not only to attract new customers, but also to, for the politicians to understand that we are investing, that we're looking at sustainability, that we're on the agenda of levelling up, that we understand that we can create jobs their priorities are our priorities and we just need to tell that story a lot better and you know it's really easy for me to do because I'm you know a beer lover I'm a passionate pub goer 
pubs are life. You know, they're celebrations of, you know, the good, the bad, life, death, all of the best things that have happened, you know, have happened probably experiences in and around a pub. Some of the best food I've eaten is in a pub, um, drinking some fantastic beers and visiting breweries up and down the country. Um, you know, that's what I do in my spare time. And I get to now champion it in my professional life and with some a fantastic team of people that do that alongside me. And, you know, we just have to keep pushing forward to make sure that we can survive and get back to celebrating the industry that we all love. Perfect. Okay, good. You're right, actually, about sustainability and environmentally. I had a few questions dotted around that, but we're out of time. But I was really impressed to see that it was, you know, it was on your website. I watched a great video, something about grub, I'm sure. It was the fact that you guys are, you know, looking after food. Um, so, yeah, really good to, to know that that was a high agenda. So we'll do another one one day that's not about the pandemic, that's about all the cool Sounds good. Uh, environmental stuff. Um, if people want to find out more, if they want to follow you personally or, or they want to, to follow, you know, your campaigns or the association, where's the best place for people to visit? Um, well, there's always the BBPA website. Site, so check us out. What's, what um, is it? Beerandpub.com. Beerandpub.com. That's so much easier. Yeah. <laughs> Can't we just call you the Beer and Pub group? <laughs> um, Beerandpub.com. Um, you know, and follow me on Twitter. And what's, what's your handle, as the kids say? <laughs> there's only <laughs> there's only one Emma McClarkin. Of course there is. I mean, without there a doubt, is. Genuinely, <laughs> um, there really only is. Uh, I, I so will you, find it, and I'll put it on the uh, the show notes on the do, website. So uh, yeah, I'll put, I'll put all the links. If you haven't made contact with me or with the BBPA and you want to know more, please get in touch. Amazing. Okay, well, look, thank you so much. Really enjoyed it. Uh, great to chat. Thanks for spending the time. Appreciate it. Okay, as promised, various websites, links and contacts are on the website or will be coming out in the email on Monday morning if you are signed up to the weekly newsletter. So that's humansofhospitality.co.uk and click on the episodes to find this show and the show notes. That is it for me for this year. If you really want to buy me a Christmas present, and I'm sure you do, please simply subscribe, rate and review this podcast and come back next year to continue our learnings and our adventures. If you fancy letting me know the kind of people and topics you enjoy, then there is a contact form on the website too. So just pop your thoughts in there and they come straight through to me. That's also the spot where you can sign up to support the podcast via either Patreon or PayPal financially, and those donations are really, really helpful. I hope you all have a good Christmas. Obviously, whether you work in the sector or not, it's not going to be the normal celebrations, but hang on in there, and here's to some very positive conversations and learnings in 2021. I'll be back in your ears around the 18th of January. Bye for now. Emma McCarkin, Chief Executive of the British Peer... Peer... peer. <laughs> there is a Peers, because I come from Bournemouth. <laughs> British Peers. I can do Peers. Welcome. Peers and Beers. Yeah. I like Shit, it. Shit, I got the wrong podcast. <laughs> We're going to hear to talk about British Peers. <laughs> this is welcome to my world. Oh, God. Right, I might try that again. Put my teeth in.